Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible, a podcast where we take a deep dive into biblical topics in a way that's easy to understand. If you would like to follow along with us, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and subscribe to the Let's Read the Bible Together reading plan. We also have that plan available on our website, grove.church. And as usual, if you've got questions that come up uh, while you're reading uh, any of the scripture or you're listening along with us or you overhear a question, uh, we would love to take time to answer those questions as much as we can week over week. Uh, at the end of our podcast, there's two ways that you can send us those questions. One is an email. The info or the, the email address is info at grove.church. Make sure to put in the subject line a podcast question. Or you can direct message us on Facebook. We are the Grove Church in Washington State, and we would love for you to send us those questions there. All right. Well, this week we are getting into the book of Jeremiah, which if I'm not mistaken, this, this is our first major prophet of the year. So... If you remember, I say if you remember, if you've been listening to this podcast for longer than two weeks, you'll know that we just got list, we just got done with the minor prophets, which are Hosea through Malachi. There's also a section called the major prophets, which yep. they're called that just because, you know. They're more important than the minor prophets. Yeah, no, exactly. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, no, they're, they're, they're longer is basically the thing. Yeah, Sla- the or they're longer, or like in the case of Lamentations, it's not necessarily longer, but it's written by Jeremiah as far as like you know, spoilers when we get to Lamentations. What? <laughs> it's almost like Jeremiah is going to have something to lament about. Yeah, it's like he was called the weeping prophet or something like that. Anyway, so Jeremiah is the first one that we are going to tackle. Uh, His book of prophecy actually spans a a pretty significant amount of time. Uh, He begins his reign as a contemporary of Zephaniah and Habakkuk. So he witnesses the triumph of King Josiah's reign. Uh, If you don't remember, Josiah, listeners, you may remember from our podcast episodes on the kings of, of Judah. He was the last great. He was the last good king. He was the last great king. Um, I would even argue that he was the greatest king, not named David, of of Israel or Judah. Like Josiah was truly great at what God had called him to do. Mm-hmm. But it just goes back downhill right after him. So his son kind of sucks, and then the few heirs that come after that are just they just kind of lead Judah right off the cliff. So what are you going to do, uh, Jeremiah? Would because of all of this, he would witness the triumph of King Josiah's reign, and then he would also witness the destruction of Jerusalem, which we we kind of take for granted now as for how big of a deal that was. But that is a covenant altering moment in the history of Israel and in the history of of, of these people. They, they there is nothing that is a bigger deal than the fact that Jerusalem was taken. This the city of God. Um, Zion that God was always going to protect. And finally, God is like, look, if you're not going to uphold your end of the covenant, I'm not going to uphold mine. And then the Babylonians come. So it's just a whole... Yeah, it's... it's. We always say this. I say, I feel like we say this like every other episode, but like try and take off your modern Western glasses and look at this through the lens of mm-hmm. the people who were experiencing this. This was an incredibly traumatic thing. And to be clear, God was not saying, well, you didn't uphold yours, so therefore I'm not going to... It wasn't like that, like retaliatory. It was... I've been patient. Yeah. I've been gracious. I've done everything. You have proven yourself to not want me to be uh, your Lord, to be your provider, your protector, all of those things. And so he allowed them to go away and do their own thing away from him. So it wasn't like, and I, I want to be careful, right? Because God wasn't throwing a temper tantrum, putting, crossing his arms right, saying, fine, yeah. you don't want me anyway. Like, no, it was, you're choosing your path and, and I'm not going to sit here and make you. 
Um, and so that that that's the reality of the situation, what's happening going on. So yeah, we're reminded all through, particularly all through the prophets, that God is slow to anger. Um, but abounding but that, in love. That's not impossible to get to anger. That's that true. Is, that yeah, is slow to anger. And in Jeremiah, we're going to see. He's angry. Yep, exactly. Uh, Jeremiah is often referred to as the weeping prophet. Uh, and to be fair, if my ministry was all about how my nation was going to be destroyed and everyone I loved be shipped off into slavery, I would also be bummed. Yes. I would also... <laughs> when I believe... I, I want to be careful because I, I remember one of the things is like Jeremiah's prophecy is never responded or has never... There's just something about his prof- like his prophecy where God's people never responded, never repented. And so that's part of the reason why he's lamenting and crying and weeping is because yeah. he's prophesying to people who are, who are not listening and not interested in listening. Well, and there's what's interesting is there's and I I want to be so I haven't I that really such a weird way to come like well it's interesting. It's interesting. Like, so <laughs> I, I'm trying to be very careful with this because I haven't done a really deep dive study into Jeremiah. So we're kind of we're kind of learning at, as we go here a little bit with this book. Um from what I've read so far, I do not remember seeing an opportunity for Judah to repent, which is very different from most of the prophetic books. The one place I thought I saw it, where I was like, oh, okay, well, and we'll actually, we'll get to it. So I'll, I'll, I'll share why it's not quite what it looks like. Um, but it, it seems like at this moment that God's mind is kind of made up. Mm-hmm. And that he and he and there's moments where it's not it's all wrath no mercy. God talks about his mercy, but I, I have not yet seen it in. So and I want to be careful because I won't know this till the end of the book. Yeah, but I have not yet seen a moment of hey, if you repent, maybe I'll relent from this. It seems like no, this is coming. Yeah. and it reminds me of remember because it, it surprised me in Chronicles. I can't remember if it's in Kings or Chronicles, but it's after the reign of Manasseh. And it's saying that, yeah, listen, that was it. We're done now. And Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. And even in the midst of Josiah, um, the language was not, I'm going to relent from that destruction. It's that I'm not going to let it happen during your lifetime because you've been such a good king. But there was, but the, the conversation was not, now you can escape this. It's No, it's still coming, but yeah. we're going to delay it a little bit. So yeah. it's kind of... <laughs> but, and there's, and just... It, to be clear, I, we've not seen it yet. We're not going to see it yet. But there is a moment where it, it God's mind is made up. But the, the I, I would even say it this way: like the the exile is already on its way, right? And and so it's coming. Like the consequences of rebellion are now unleashed. They're unfolded. Like they they are now rolling out. And and it's and at the towards the end of the book, and I, I guess more towards the middle of the book, we're going to see like this is where Jeremiah twenty nine eleven comes into play, where God is prophesy or God is promising hope for his people in the midst of their exile. Right. Um, and so it's not necessarily that God's going to relent punishment or the wrath. God's going to redeem um, and, and fulfill his purposes at the end of the, at the end of exile. There is, there is re- redemption coming. Um, and it's in a greater form of Jesus, the Messiah, right? Even as we discussed last week with John being the Messiah, but the reality is like, it's not necessarily God's going to relent or, or, or reprove or minimize wrath. God, the consequences are now unfolding and God's going to show Himself faithful in the midst of it. Right. Um, so, the whole the whole point of judgment is punishment for the rebellion, which the goal is to lead them to repentance. Like the, it's His kindness that leads. Yeah, them to that's so. Fair. There is that picture to it too. But there, you're right. In the in the prophetic books we've already studied, um, there is a very definitive moment of repent now. Yeah. Um, and I don't think we see it as much as Jeremiah's. And I'll have to review my notes on Jeremiah from when I read it years ago, but. I do think there is that that picture there too. So, anyways. yeah. Well, it, yeah. Jeremiah 29, 
2911 is always like the go-to like <laughs> for i know the plans i have for you declares the lord well, yeah because it's to prosper you and not to harm you and it's a very it's a very powerful verse when understood but is it is much more like um even though i walk through the valley of the shadow yep. of death i will fear no evil for you are with me that is the promise of that verse it's yeah. not like the uh, and, that, and that's a really good um really good parallel i think to to attach it to a little bit yeah it's not the uh you're 18 you just graduated and you have your whole life ahead of you it's very much like hey this season is gonna suck and it's gonna be really painful but there's hope you mean you mean of ask of me and i will give you the nations as your inheritance isn't something i should there's hold on that to either. one there's oh, <laughs> the the what's the the matthew six is it 633 where it's seek first the kingdom of god and all these things will be added unto yep. you and we kind of people context will, matters people yeah people will pitch that as like anything you want and nope. it's like no he's specifically talking about like food and shelter food, shelter clothing <laughs> yeah that's what like, he's talking like, about yeah the things that you need to survive so anyways yeah. anyway sorry well, it's way off but yeah so I, I mean but there is clarity i think that i think that psalm 23 parallel is really really strong um because it's in the midst of exile it's in the midst of the punishments in the midst of consequences that God is still showing himself faithful and present, mm -hmm. even though he's angry and doesn't want to sometimes. Um, I think as hard as always, I want to. So, yeah. All right. Well, let's get into, uh, because Jeremiah is a major prophet, we actually get to know the the, the man, Jeremiah, pretty well. Um, oh, sorry. I forgot to mention, all while this is happening, there's a guy named Baruch who's in the background, but he's really cool. So he uh, he helps out Jeremiah. He's kind of a sidekick, the uh, the Sancho to his Don Quixote. Um, I should have used it better. Yeah, yeah, because Don Quixote is kind of an, a numbskull. But you know, he's, it's his sidekick. He's 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 scribing. He's probably the one who's writing all of this down. And then later on in the book, uh, I don't think it's until the halfway point, but you actually get introduced to Baruch as someone who's like. And then he was tasked to go do this and stuff like that. So just keep in mind that there's a there's his, a guy. His Robin to the Batman. There you go. Batman would be a much better, much better analogy. Much much better. Thank you. His the little John to his Robin Hood. Um, those are both way better than I don't know why I went Don Quixote there. I don't know either. All right. So chapter one begins with the description of Yahweh's call to Jeremiah. And it says, starting in uh, verse four, now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Pause there. Wow. Like that is... <laughs> That's quite the statement of just like, listen, this this is what I made you for. Yeah. You are here for this purpose. Um, and then we kind of get a little bit of parallels to Moses with Jeremiah's reply. He says, ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am only a youth for to all whom I send you, you shall go and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them. For I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck and to break down, to destroy and overflow, to build, overthrow, to build and to plant. So there's a lot of parallels there, right? So it's Moses being... Um, lacking confidence to do what God has called him to do. There's a little bit of Timothy vibes of, you know, let no one despise your <laughs> yeah, youth. Right. And there's Isaiah, right? Where the hot coal is pressed against Isaiah's lips. And he says, behold, your, uh, the Lord says, behold, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. And it's this one isn't a forgiveness of sin, but it's the Lord, again, touching his lips and saying, I'm giving you the words to say, now go. Uh, and to Jeremiah's credit, unlike another prophet, he wasn't like, please send my brother instead. Like Jeremiah goes, <laughs> shots fired, shots Moses. fired, Moses. Uh, just kidding, Moses, you were awesome. So, because Moses listens to our podcast. So, um, <laughs> there you go. So, yeah, Yahweh promises that Jeremiah will be empowered 
uh, for this ministry. And I, I just, I love that so much because it's essentially the Lord saying, I made you for this. I am setting you over nations. Like don't, you should not care what kings have to say. Don't care what emperors have to say. Don't care what the priests have to say. You are my chosen instrument in this moment. So and we'll see throughout Jeremiah's life how difficult it is. Yep. And and it's it's a significant moment like this that I I I, I would this is me totally speculating, totally writing my own thought process into it, right? But I'm I wonder how many times this was a reminder in those moments with Jeremiah and God. Like why did you choose me? I chose you. Okay, you win. Like, there's just that drawing back to being called, being established, being empowered. Um, that, but still, like, we are going to see how difficult this call is, which is why I would suggest this significant encounter and elect and calling um, is, is pretty significant for Jeremiah. Yeah, but absolutely. Anyways, well, yeah, it's 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 a credible passage. As we get passage. into as we get deeper into the book, we'll see. Like, there's I don't, I don't want to spoil them anymore, but yeah, there's passages where Jeremiah and Lord kind of go at it a little bit over this call. So it's, it's, it'll be really good. They throw down a bit. They throw down a bit. So uh, his ministry begins in earnest in chapter two with Jeremiah declaring how unfaithful Israel has been to Yahweh. Um, And this actually, it's similar to Hosea in that the metaphor is of a married couple. So remember Hosea (laughs) is, he marries Gomer um, who is an unfaithful wife to him as a parallel, as a, as a metaphor to show how Israel has been unfaithful to God. Um, Jeremiah doesn't act out the metaphor, but that is the metaphor he uses of. And so we'll see it here um, at the very beginning where it talks about how when Israel was young, they were like a faithful wife, but now um, they've gone off and committed adultery with other gods. Gosh, Israel. Oh, come on. Uh, and then this passage to me felt incredibly poignant. So this is Jeremiah chapter two, verses five through eight. Thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they were far away from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? So I, it's just kind of going through God's, and I think this, I think this is appropriate, um, God's sorrow over the way that the people of Israel have treated him. And I think it's just this idea of like, what, like what, ex- and I think it's such a, it's such an important thing for Yahweh to say through Jeremiah here is what did I do to, to make you go chase after other gods? And of course the answer is nothing. The, mm-hmm. the answer is that God has been nothing but faithful, um, both to the Israelites and to us today. Um, and yet our hearts are still pulled towards sin. And I think here we see a picture of the grief that God feels over that. Um, continuing in chapter six, or sorry, verse six, it says, they did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness in a land of deserts and pits in a land of drought and deep darkness in a land that none passes through and no man dwells. And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and you made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, where's the Lord? Those who handled the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. And so it's this whole idea of like, you were, and it's just, it's God 
poignantly reminding his people, you were in slavery. You were going to spend the rest of your lives and the rest of the lives of your people slowly being assimilated into Egyptian culture as their slaves. And I brought you out of that. I parted the Red Sea. I brought you into the promised land and you've just defiled it by worshiping other gods. Like, I I don't know. Like when I was reading that, I was like, I was really sad just kind of like going through it um, and thinking about, yeah, thinking about the, the brokenness of that relationship and how the people of Israel had really just from the beginning really drifted away from God. Um, as this section as this section goes on, Jeremiah continues to build his case against Judah. Uh, he talks about how Yahweh brought them up out of slavery, and yet the people reject him. They worship the Baals, and yet they claim to be unclean, which this is a big thing that we'll see in a lot of the prophetic books where it's the hypocrisy of it that bothers um that seems to bother God the most. Where and he'll uh, well, yeah, actually we'll talk about this in a second. So uh teaser for a little bit. Uh, and then hold fast, hold fast. And then no matter how much God brings correction, they will not listen. And that's what Aaron, you alluded to that earlier, where this is not like the the people of Judah should not be like, whoa, whoa, where's this coming from? Like yeah. this has been, no, this has been happening for a long time. Uh, there's a really interesting contrast between Israel and Judah. Um, and so this is the part where this is what I was just talking about, where they, the hypocrisy of it bothers God. And this is the part where I thought it was an open call to repentance to Judah. It was not. So um, basically God's point is that at least Israel never didn't try to lie about their apostasy. And so I always joke, right, about how Judah is kind of on a roller coaster where they have good kings and bad kings. They have good moments and bad moments. And Israel is basically from the stop. They're a roller coaster of a different kind, but they're the one that just drops a hundred feet and doesn't go back up. Like that's kind of their thing. Um, and God's point here is that, well, yeah, at least they didn't lie. At least they weren't saying, yes, we're faithful worshipers of Yahweh. What are you talking about? No, they just went off and worshiped other gods and they made no qualms about it. So, and they were destroyed first because they made no qualms about it, but, uh, or I shouldn't say because they made no qualms about it because they were worse. But the whole idea here is that Judah is in, in one, on one day offering sacrifices to Baal and on the next day going to the temple and talking about how much they love Yahweh and how they're not unclean and stuff like that. And God's like, yeah, I don't want any more of that. That's ridiculous. <laughs> like, that's ridiculous. Why are you claiming to be unclean when you just offered sacrifices to foreign gods? Uh, and so here's where I thought it was really interesting. In chapter three, there is a plea for the people specifically of Israel to repent, uh, which I think is really interesting given the history of that nation and the history of what will happen after or what's going to happen in the future. Um, So this is Jeremiah chapter three, starting in verse 11. And the Lord said to me, faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and go and proclaim these words toward the North and say, return faithless Israel declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger for I am merciful declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners and under every green tree, that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. So a couple interesting things. I I love the adjectives of um, faithless Israel and treacherous Judah. Because you can very much get at what what God is getting at, whether there's just, yeah, the, the treachery of essentially lying and pretending that you're something that you're not. Um, I also think it's really interesting that what is the promise of God at the end of that passage? It's to bring them into Jerusalem. So Zion is 
uh, Jerusalem. It's another word for Jerusalem there. What God is promising is to take the people of Israel who their whole thing was that they separated off from Judah and that they don't worship in Jerusalem because they don't want to be subservient to the Southern kingdom. Essentially, he's saying, yeah, if you want it, it's yours. You can have this inheritance instead of the people of Judah. That's a, that is a crazy statement that's yeah. just buried into the middle of Jeremiah. Um, but essentially, you, you, you feel the anger that Yahweh has over the people of Judah here, for the people of Judah here. Um, after encouraging the people to, of Israel to repent, Jeremiah turns his attention back to Judah and he proclaims on the streets of Jerusalem that destruction is coming from the north. Spoilers, that is where uh, Babylon is. So <sighs> Babylon's northeast, but the way you get there, you don't go over the desert. You come up and around through what used to be Israel and then will eventually become just you know a whole big thing of Babylon. Uh, the detailed description continues through chapter six. God makes it incredibly clear that Judah has been given multiple chances and has squandered them all. Uh, there is a hopeless tone found in Jeremiah that is missing in the earlier prophets. And basically what I'm getting at there is that whole thing where I talked about there, there's not very many, um, there's not this opportunity given to avert the judgment of God. And that's not to say, and Aaron, I think, I think you said it really well. That's not to say that God is completely cutting the yeah. people off forever, but it's saying, no, this coming judgment is going to happen and there's really no way to get out of it. Yeah. I liken it to like recently, even my daughter, she was caught lying. We punished her. Classic. And the punishment was like no screens, right? She couldn't watch shows with us. She doesn't watch a ton of them, but she does. No more Coco Melon. No, no more Coco Melon. No. <laughs> um, but in that moment, like there's consequence for a decision and consequence for lying and there's a punishment unfolding but it didn't, it, it wasn't my main perspective on her. My main attitude towards her was not, you were lying. I'm mad at you. It was, you lied. There's a consequence. I'm not happy. This, this is the punishment. But after that, it was love, grace, and, and mercy in the midst of it. But I didn't relent the consequence. She right. still had to endure no screens for, I think it was like two days. Um, finished up one day, watched the next one. So there is this, I think you can sense even in that plea towards Israel, this mercy of God that plays out. Where it's like, this is the consequence. Consequence is unfolding. It's going to happen, but I love you, but I care about you, but I'll show you mercy, mm -hmm. but the consequence is unfolding. And and you have to let it run its course, fulfill it. Like, so for, for my daughter, she she endured the full, whatever, day and a half or two days of no screens. And then the third day she was back to watching, but I didn't let that punishment define her. Um, and I don't, I think that's part of God's heart is I'm not going to not show you grace and love and mercy. I'm still going to love you and be merciful towards you, but consequence is now a byproduct of your your decision to rebel yeah. and not return to me after all of the opportunities I gave you. So, Well, I think it's, it's fine because it's something you don't really get as a kid, but like now as an adult, and I don't have kids yet, but as an adult, I, I very much understand what my parents were getting at when they would punish me and say, hey, listen, like there, there's nothing you can do right now to get out of this punishment, but still love you. And I'm doing no, this because of like, yeah, exactly. Because like, oh, Yep. But like uh, the older you get, yep. the more you realize, okay, I understand what you're saying yep. here. Um, chapter seven starts off a new section of the book, and this is dealing with Judah's hypocrisy. In case you were curious, yeah, he's God is very mad about this. Uh, and so this is Jeremiah chapter seven, verses eight through 11. It says, behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, 
which is called by my name, become a den of robbers. That's going to come up in the gospels. In your eyes, behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. And so basically his point is like, you're living like every other nation. Like you're going around, you're murdering, you're being unfaithful to your spouse. You are uh, lying, you're making offerings to other gods. And then you have the audacity to come into the temple and say like, Yahweh is our deliverer. He's like, no, I'm done. Like and you feel the anger of God in, yeah. the, in these very oh, absolutely. much so. Um, he's like, I'm over it. I'm yeah, we're not, we're not playing this game anymore. Um, and it's that theme. I, it's been it, I've been on this kick this year just when we read Samuel and it kind of just clicked with me that so much of the Old Testament is the theme of Israel wanting to be like the other nations and then eventually that's what they get um before and then the post-exilic period is kind of like the redemption of that but I think this is more of that theme being explored um at the end of chapters 8 through 9 or at the end of chapter 8 through chapter 9 we read a lament of of Jeremiah which get you get used to those <laughs> he's going to have a few of them uh he is heartbroken over the sin of his people and their coming judgment Finally, in chapter 10, this section wraps up with the condemnation of Judah's idolatry. Um, they have continuously left Yahweh behind and worshiped false gods, and they are told that the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth will pass away, yet Judah forsakes the God who created the universe for them. So I, I love that imagery because that is um, in Jonah, when all of the sailors are trying to, like they're offering prayers to their God to save them. They're like, Jonah, who do you serve? And he's like, oh, I serve the God who made the heavens and the earth. And they're the, 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 so just like, well, that would have been helpful to, to say. And so um, it's just this whole idea of the supremacy of Yahweh over false gods. Mm-hmm. And he's saying like, you, you basically the one of the ways that the Jews would describe Yahweh is the 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 maker of heaven and earth, the maker of the heavens and the earth. And he's like, you're forsaking that God for all of these just random ones that aren't even real. Um, yeah, it's just it's interesting there. Uh, and then we'll wrap up. So we're going through chapter 12 today, and then we'll, like I said, we'll be in Jeremiah for a while. Uh, we're going to wrap up with chapters 11 through 12 this week, which begin a section describing the destruction of Judah once more. Um, Yahweh tells Jeremiah that he has told the Israelites to obey for generations, and yet they do not listen. And then here's what's really interesting. He gives Jeremiah this really terrifying command. Uh, Therefore, do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer on their behalf, for I will not listen when they call to me in their time of trouble. What right has my beloved in my house when she has done many vile deeds? Can even sacrificial flesh avert your doom? Can you then exult? The Lord once called you a green olive tree, beautiful with good fruit, but with the roar of a great tempest, he will set fire to it and its branches will be consumed. The Lord of hosts who planted you has decreed disaster against you because of the evil that the house of Israel and the house of Judah had done, have done, provoking me to anger and making and by making offerings to Baal. So yeah, he commands Jeremiah, don't bother praying. Like, I'm not listening. Like, it's not going to happen. And then what do we what have we seen in all of Judah's history is they they forsake God, calamity comes, and then they cry out to God for deliverance, and God delivers them. This time, he's like, it's going to be different. And they, the, the Judans, Judeans are going to do the same thing. They are going to cry out to God for deliverance in their time of trouble. And for the first time, God's not going to listen, and he's going to let it happen. 
So uh, it's it's just scary. (laughs) It's such a terrifying thing um, to read. And just, again, to put yourself into the shoes of those people where they've run out of chances. Uh, Chapter 12 is really reminiscent of Habakkuk for me, uh, where Jeremiah asks why God has allowed the wicked to prosper. Um, which is really interesting. So remember, Habakkuk starts off, and and they're they're contemporaries. So Habakkuk starts off with looking at the just the apostasy and the wickedness of Jerusalem, and he's saying, you know, Lord, how long are you going to let this happen? And then God's answer to Habakkuk is, well, don't worry, the Babylonians are going to come and destroy everything. <laughs> and then Habakkuk's like, whoa, wait a second. <laughs> uh, and so Jeremiah asks the same question as Habakkuk: How long are you going to allow the wickedness in this land to prosper? Uh, Jeremiah's answer is essentially, hey, if you think it's bad now, uh, <laughs> just just wait, just wait for what's coming. Wait a minute, huh? And that's oh man, and that's the end. That's the not of the book, but that's that's where it wraps. That's up where for, we're going to end. Yeah, that's where it wraps week. up for this week. So next week we will get into a little bit more of the prophecy of exactly just exactly how bad it's going to be. So, Sweet. Uh, but before we finish up the book of John this week, we do want to take a moment to remember uh, to remind you to leave a five star review wherever you're listening particularly on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Those are the most helpful. Um, but yeah, it just helps get the podcast out there to more people, continue to grow this community of people reading the Bible together. Uh, and so we would very much appreciate it. We've made up our, you know, our race to a hundred. So if you, you know, it would be, it would be swell. <laughs> we just made it up. It would be swell of you listeners to get us over that, go over that benchmark this year. Listen, if we don't hit it on both, I'm out. I'm walking. We're walking. No, I'm just kidding. We'll do, we're going to boycott. No, I'm just kidding. More like, let's not read the Bible. Yeah. You guys read it without us. You don't need us. No, I'm just just kidding. Uh, yeah, do that. That'd be awesome. We'd love for you to do that. Thank you for joining with us uh, and being a part of the community. It's awesome. Um, as Evan said, we are wrapping up the book of John this week. Um, and I alluded to this last week. It's probably one of my favorite books of the Bible. It was definitely when I was in college, uh, when I took a class called Johannian Literature, uh, which just makes me sound smart that I took a class called Johannian Literature. But, it sounds really uh, cool. And it's a rad way to say it. So, but yeah, so we're going to finish up the book of John today. I would say that Job is my favorite book of the Bible, but John 21 is my favorite chapter of the Bible because that is like, and we'll, so you'll, we'll get to it, but just know that while you're describing John 21, my heart will be a flutter because it's, I, I love it so much. It's good. But that's what we call a teaser. I shouldn't, I shouldn't tell you that we're not going to touch John 21 today, oh but no, I'm just kidding. Um, so again, uh, I, like I said last week, this, this book kind of breaks down into four real big sections. Um, and by say big, I mean four distinct sections. The first was a prologue, the first 18 verses. John was setting up his his whole heartbeating theme uh, to uh, explain and reveal uh, the truth that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, he took the next section to really talk about the signs uh, of of his Messiahship, if you will. Hopefully I can say that without getting called out by a math teacher this week. Um, and so he talks about the different signs, uh, the different attempts. He talks about the growing opposition, uh, but really just to validate Jesus's ministry and uh, support for his um, Messiahship. Then the next section is uh, the farewell discourse uh, and the passion narrative. That's what comes in from chapter 13 to, to chapter 20. Uh, and then we hit chapter 21, which is the, the epilogue. It's the end of the book of John where, where John is strategically leaving um, and, and wrapping up his, his account of Jesus's ministry um, and the revelation of who Jesus is. Um, I, I will say this again, uh, just as a reiteration, uh, we look at the first half of the book, chapters one through 12. Um, it covers about three and a half-ish years of Jesus's life in ministry uh, from 30 to 33-ish. Um, and then the second half of the book, this is where it slows way down 
and just covers about like the last week-ish, if you will, um, of Jesus's life before his death and resurrection, and then the immediate aftermath. Uh, and so that's kind of what the, the remainder of John is going to be for us this week. We're going to be navigating uh, his farewell discourse. We're going to be navigating the passion narrative. We're going to be navigating his death and resurrection and the, the final reinstitution uh, of the disciples, the sending, the empowering, and the sending out of his disciples. Uh, but we're going to start here with the farewell discourse and the passion narrative. Um, and this is now that Jesus has been rejected by the Jews. Remember, his ministry was to um, reveal, support, and provide his 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 truth, the Messiah, the fulfillment of God's promise um, to, to the world as he knew it. Um, the Jewish audience rejected him, and now you'll see him turn inward, so to speak, to the uh, I, I said this way in in one of the study Bibles that I was reading uh, of his messianic community, and as in essence, it's like the closest followers of Jesus, those who have stayed the course and chosen to follow Jesus in spite of it. Um, and so this this section starts off with Jesus's cleansing of his disciples, um, and and also giving instructions to this new messiah, messiah messianic community, uh, as well as Jesus' final prayer in John chapter seventeen. Which in and of itself, I wish we had the time to really dive into John 17. I'm actually not going to touch it because I knew if I touched it, I would want to spend a lot of time in it. So um, it's a really remarkable prayer uh, of Jesus at the very, it's almost like his last real prayer um, where he's talking to God. He's um, calling for unity, calling for protection, calling for empowerment for the, his closest followers. He's he's affirming his obedience to God's call uh, as his father to build up and, and, and empower the disciples. Uh, and it really is just a beautiful conversation that we get to we get to see a, a an inside look at at Jesus's dialogue with God the Father. Um, so that's John 17. But we're not going to go there. It starts with the cleansing of he cleans the disciples. He cleanses them in John chapter 13, which I really wrestle with reading this. Um, and I'm just going to say this as an aside. I've wrestled with this for the last two weeks. In doing and prepping the notes, I've wrestled with the idea like, man, John is such a phenomenal book. Um, and there's so much to it uh, that I've, I've actually taken larger chunks of scripture to read through than I normally do um, because there's just so much to dialogue about. Um but it really is remarkable. Uh, and so John chapter 13, we see that Jesus washes his disciples' feet, which is a very uh, significant thing because even the, like the lowest servant on the totem pole would be the one who washes feet. Um, and you see this cleansing physically that Jesus is giving to his disciples. It's not just cleaning their feet in the moment, but it's also a, a symbolic reality of his acceptance and now their cleanliness to then go and do what God's going to call them to do after Jesus dies and, ra- and raises again. Um you see Jesus then shift to have a conversation with uh, the disciples minus Judas, um, because this is also the same Last Supper where he then leaves. Uh, and I want to read a little bit here for us in just a second. Um, but you see this cleansing happen. You see this instruction happen. Um, and then it's also there's this figurative moment where the removal of the betrayal and then you see Jesus jump into this discourse of a farewell. In essence, it's like his last things. Let me tell you what's going to happen. Let me tell you what you need to know. Let me tell you these things. Um, and so that's going to be the bulk of this section, the bulk of this uh, the, these chapters in chapter 13, 31 to 16, 33. Um, and then it will contain final instructions for his followers before his arrest and crucifixion. Um, and so I want to read this because this is this is a significant moment. I told Evan, uh, actually I told him last week prior to the podcast recording that I've really been stuck in this Judas moment and, and the disciples, I'm reading the book of Luke personally right now. Uh, and there's this significant, like I'm just sitting in the, the, the Judas reality. And this moment as I'm, 
uh, as I was reading through and prepping for this podcast episode, uh, this this stood out to me really powerfully. And I think it's important to take a moment and just kind of really dive into it for a second. Uh, John chapter 13, verse 12. This is right after he finished washing the disciples' feet. Judas was included in this, by the way. Um, It says this, when Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are speaking rightly since that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should also do just as I've done for you. Truly, I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I love that tension he creates. If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. Not just if you know them, but if you do them. Um, I'm not speaking about all of you. And this is interesting. He says, I know I know those I have chosen, but the scripture must be fulfilled. The one who eats my bread has raised his heel against me. He He, he understands his audience. He understands the disciples. And he's calling them to wash each other's feet. He's calling them to serve one another. He's calling them to, to model his love, his humility, and his servitude as he just modeled for them. But then he says this, I know who my audience is. I know who I've chosen. And in that moment, he's alluding the fact that he knows that Judas is going to betray him. He knows that even though Jesus is teaching and has taught Judas the same things he's taught the other 11 disciples for the last three plus years, that Judas is still going to reject him. And, and I've read different things that have alluded to Judas being more like greed was a big part of his issue. Like he, Jesus even says, you can't serve both God and money. Judas would have been there when Jesus said that, but there was this, this desire, this materialism, this consumerism that existed in Judas's heart. Uh, And so he alludes to the fact that he knows that someone is going to raise his heel against him. The one who eats my bread. And I'm telling you now, and Jesus says this in verse 19, I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. Truly, I tell you, whoever receives anyone I send receives me. And the one who receives me receives the one who sent me. When Jesus had said this, he was touched. He was troubled in spirit and testified. Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. And this moment is like, think about it for a second. They're sitting around a table reclining last supper. They're reflecting on the Passover, which is what the Last Supper was about, was the Passover feast, uh, reflecting back into Egypt, into Jerusalem. And there's so many significant nuances here where Jesus, is, he offers the bread, he offers the cup, and he takes what was once symbolic of the, 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 the spirit of death killing the firstborn in Egypt, passing over all of God's people because they marked their door frames with lamb's blood. He's taking that, that remembrance of that, that instance in Israel's history and he's re-anchoring to say, you're doing this in remembrance of me. This body symbolizes my broken body for you. This blood symbolizes my... So it's a significant moment happening. But in this moment, he just got done washing their feet. He's now sitting down reclining and teaching them. And he says, one of you will betray me. And it's almost like this stark turn from this, this go and do what I've called you to do. I know not all of you will. And one of you is going to betray me. And then it says this, uh, the disciples started looking at one another, uncertain which one he was speaking about. Which is interesting because it shows that the disciples were not as, like Judas did a good job pretending. Judas did a good job not of showing his heart or showing his cards saying, hey, I'm really I'm really stealing from the money bags. He was the money holder. And so he's the one that threw a fit about the Mary's perfume being poured out because he could have, well, we could have sold that and given money to the poor. Really, he's like, we could have sold that and I could have given a small portion of the poor, but I could have had more money to live the way I wanted to live off of. Classic like, Judas. Um but so he's he's saying these things and the disciples are looking at each other. Who is it? Is it going to use it? You? Like all of a sudden it's like the murmuring that happens in the room. Like, oh my gosh, is it so? And then 
one of the disciples, the one Jesus loved, which is this, <laughs> this is the best part. Uh, and there's moments at the end of this, the, the book that we read that I, I'll hit more about this, but he said, the one Jesus loved was reclining close beside Jesus. Simon Peter motioned him to find out who he was talking about. So we leaned back against Jesus and asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus replied, he is the one that I give the piece of bread to after I've dipped, dipped it. When he dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas, 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 Simon Iscariot's son. Now I want to stop for a second. This is what has been so profound to me. Extending a piece of bread in Jewish culture, in ancient culture, is, is, is more than just like a symbol Jesus was using in that moment to give Judas bread. Hey, this, I'm going to show you that whoever eats this bread, hey, Evan, have the bread. No, what it was is even in that moment when Jesus knew what was going to happen, he was still, he was extending bread in ancient culture. It's a, it's an invitation of friendship. It's an invitation of relationship. I'm giving you my bread because I desire to have relationship with you because I want you to belong. I want you to be a part of, of this feast. I want you here in this family with this, these people. So even in the midst of his awareness of Jesus betraying him, and I love this, Pastor Nate preached on this a couple of weeks ago, or it came up in a message a few weeks ago. I think he also spoke at it at your dad's church, actually. Um, but this idea that even in the midst of Judas's betrayal, Jesus was still trying to reach him. Right. Even in the midst of his, for 30 pieces of silver, I looked this up too when Nick was speaking on it. It was like, I think significant of four to $5,000 today. For the equivalent of four to $5,000 today, maybe it was six grand. But minimal, he'd betrayed Jesus for a minimal amount. It wasn't even like a life-changing amount of money. Right. It was minimal of 30 pieces of silver. Uh, but Jesus knew what was coming and he still was motioning. He still was trying to establish and offer grace and reach his friend because he loved Simon or Judas dearly. And then it says this, after Judas ate the piece of bread, Satan entered him. So Jesus told him what you're doing, do quickly. Real quick. What that means is not that he is then possessed by, by Satan himself. It means that Satan again showed up, tempted him, and he gave into temptation. The temptation was to, was to betray Jesus for money. And that was so it's not saying he became possessed. And I think it's a, a really clear thing that we need to make sure. Because I remember reading as kids like, oh, man, he was entered Satan. Entered? Holy, like, that's a big deal. But it means temptation overcame him. Satan worked overtime to tempt and to dissuade Judas from staying the course. It, I mean, it, to me, it's the parable of the sowers and the seed in my mind, where the seed is sown in rocky soil, the birds come and swoop it up to where Satan comes and takes it before it can ever take root. Um, so Satan entered him. Jesus said, do quickly, do what you're going to do, do quickly. And none of those reclining at the table knew why he said this to him, because again, it shows that even, and it's interesting because even though John knew in that moment, okay, Judas is the one who's going to betray Jesus, they didn't understand what it actually meant. And I think that that's, that's human. I think that that in that moment, even though they knew Jesus and what he, they didn't always fully grasp what was coming. Uh, the, the commentary I'm reading about Luke talked about the dull, like the dullness of the disciples, <laughs> uh, that they weren't as keen or weren't as aware of things. And I'd be just as guilty, I think. Um, well, I think I always like, I always try to give the disciples a little bit of a break because like Jesus oh, for so, sure. is so cryptic in so much of what he says that when he comes out with just straight up like, yeah, I'm going to die and three days later rise again. Like, I don't blame them for being like, what does he mean by that? Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, I think of on that. Like, okay. That's weird. I get it. Um, so anyway, so Judas, and then, so they didn't know why he was saying it. Judas kept the money back. Some thought Jesus was telling him, buy what you need for the festival or that he was going to, he was going to show good. He should go give something to the poor. And then verse 30, after receiving a piece of bread, he immediately left and it was night. Um, and so it's a, a significant moment in this 
conversation because Jesus just washed the disciples' feet. He's just preparing them to then, he's symbolically cleansing them before his death and resurrection. He's cleaning them to prepare them for the, the coming season of being sent out, of establishing his church. Uh, and, but then Judas and all of that was still part of that until that moment. After this, we're going to see in John, we see that Jesus' arrest, his trials, his death, and his burial. Um, and it's a very familiar passage for, section for many of us. There's a few things that I think are worth um, highlighting for us. Um, it starts obviously with the betrayal of Judas at the Garden of Gethsemane, and then an informal hearing of Annas, um, which is the high priest, Caiaphas' father. Um, and, and John is the only one who features Jesus before Annas. In Mar- Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in their accounts, it always goes before Caiaphas. But John is the only one that, that highlights he went to Annas. Um, if that's how you say his name, it makes sense to me. But I, I, I like that pronunciation. Thanks. I appreciate that. Um, well, because I, I, this is off the top of my head. Annas was the old high priest, and he was removed by the um, the Sadducees, correct? Sure. I, I actually, I, I'll be honest with you. I didn't do much if, of that. I thought it was interesting that he was the only one. Like, this is the only account that has Annas even involved. Yeah. If, I, if I'm wrong on this, I so I, here's the listeners. I'm saying this with complete, <laughs> with uh, who knows. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure, though, that I remember reading that that Annas was the high priest preferred by the Pharisees. Caiaphas was the high priest preferred by the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were more of like the political elite um, and more allied with the Romans. And so it is showing that because I, I we, we always think of the Pharisees and the Sadducees as like teaming up. Yeah. When, when in, in reality, the, a no. first century Jew reading this would have been like, whoa, whoa, whoa. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were on the same side on this because they were enemies. Yep. But they both wanted, wanted Jesus out of the picture. Yeah. And so I think it's here to show that the highest Pharisee and the highest Sadducee were both condemning Jesus. Yes. And again, I could be completely wrong on that. Yeah. So- so it's, John's the only one that highlights Annas. Um, the Roman trial is actually covered in more details in John as well. Um, so after the, the informal hearing before Annas, then he's then brought to before Pilate, and then which then leads to his crucifixion and his burial. Um, he doesn't. John does not provide much of the Jewish trial before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, um, but he only focuses. Uh, John really focuses on on everything in the Passion. Um, that it fulfills scripture and occurs in accordance with God's plan. That is God. Again, John's goal is to affirm the Messiahship of, of Christ. Um, we then see in, an, in the next section of this third overall section, you see Jesus' re- resurrection, his appearances, and the ascending of the 12 disciples. Um, this is where we'll see the empty tomb, Jesus' encounter with Mary Magdalene, where she is weeping because the tomb is empty. She sees two angels. It turns around. There's a gardener who she thinks it is. Um, and... And I might be merging a couple of the gospel accounts there, but she she doesn't know she's talking to Jesus. And then it's revealed that it's Jesus. And she is then sent to back to the disciples. She goes running. And then we see also Jesus' uh, commissioning uh, of his, his disciples um, as he arrives after resur- being resurrected. So one of the many witnesses that he gets to v- visit and reveal himself to. Um, and I like this. This is kind of a fun moment uh, where we see John kind of take a moment to just reiterate the purpose of his writing of the gospel of, of John. Um, and it's in essence, this purpose statement, it's two verses, says this in John 20, verse 30 to 31. Um, it says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. So what, what we know about Christ and the signs that he's performed happening up to his death and resurrection, um, he also performed many afterwards. 
But he said, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the purpose of John. And he puts it at the end, he, right before he hits chapter 21, where it's the epilogue, which is the final section of John, Evan's favorite chapter of John. It's a good time. Um, probably his favorite chapter almost overall. Um, but it's this incredible, incredible purpose statement that you see John write with his own hand-ish. Um, and explain, this is why I'm writing. This is the purpose of this book, is that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so it it, it kind of, John puts this big cap, like exclamation point on on the writing up to this point. Well, that's what I was going to say too, is it, it's very fitting to call it an epilogue because you could, if you, if you took out John 21, it doesn't have to be there exactly. for the story. Like it does very much, like if this is a movie, the credits roll after chapter 20, and then there's like a an after credit scene is yeah. what chapter 21 is. And I, and to be clear, I love it. I'm yeah. so glad it's Absolutely. here. But it is, it is kind of interesting that it's kind of just this detached from the narrative, um, but incredibly powerful story. I'll stop, I'll stop like stealing your thunder. Go for no, it. No, you're good, dude. And so then ch- chapter 21, the epilogue, um, this is where the roles of Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved, <laughs> which is awesome. Uh, and I, and I'm going to read, I'm going to read all of chapter 21 just for good times. Um, because there's so many significant things coming. So after Jesus rose again, and it's, it's interesting that I'll, I'll get to it. Um, so he narrated the, the chapter narrated is narrated by the disciple whom Jesus loved. Final resurrection appearance is recorded in this gospel uh, while also comparing the respective callings of Peter, um, compare the respective future callings of Peter and the disciple, quote unquote, who Jesus loved. Um, so here's what we have. Uh, John chapter 21, verse one, it says after this, so this is after he's revealed himself, after he's, he, he's shown up after he's done more miracles, more signs. It says, after all this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself in this way. It's, I want to stop. He revealed himself again. There's something that we have to remember. The disciples did not recognize Jesus until he revealed himself after he was resurrected. Oh yeah, that's true. Even in this instance, even when, even when Mary saw him right after the tomb was empty, she didn't recognize it was Jesus until he allowed her to know and he revealed himself to her, which is so powerful because Jesus was no longer human in that moment. He was no longer incarnate. He was no longer Jesus, uh, fully man, fully God. He was Jesus in the fullest expression of who he is. And, and these individuals who have walked with him for years couldn't recognize him until he revealed himself. So it says this, he revealed himself in this way, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee, Zebedee's sons, which is James and John, and two other of his disciples were together. Apparently they don't matter because they weren't named. Yeah, who cares? I'm going fishing, Simon Peter said to them. We're coming with you, they told him. They went out and got in the boat, but that night they, got, they caught nothing. When daybreak came, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Friends, Jesus called to him. You don't have any fish, do you? No, they answered. Cast the net on the right side of the boat, he told them. You'll find some. So they did, and they were unable to haul in it in because of the large number of fish. Now, this is paralleling the, the original call of Peter in the boat. When, they, or when Peter was on the shore first called, he, Jesus modeled the same thing almost. Hey, have you caught any fish? No, throw your nets on the other side, you'll catch a lot of fish. Throws the nets on the other side, catches a lot of fish. They drag it to shore and they recognize like, man, th- th- this guy. And Jesus says, follow me. Peter drops his nets, whatever, leaves a big haul of fish, which is money, which is uh, wealth in that moment. They had a haul and follows Christ. So the same, he's paralleling the same instance where Jesus first called him. And there's a reason for this as well. So they did and they were unable to haul it because of the large number of fish. 
The disciple, the one Jesus loved, notice how many times it's said, by the way, said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon heard this, that it was the Lord, he tied out his outer clothing around him for he'd taken it off and plunged into the sea. Since they were not far from land, about a hundred yards away, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. When they got out of the land, they saw a charcoal fire. This is where I, and the fish were lying on it and fish lying on it and bread. This is where I actually think um, is biblical backing for Jesus never eating sushi. But that's my my there perspective, you. just so you know. I that's, think that's, that's that's a pretty safe bet. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry, I just like to use that every now and then. Um, Bring some of the fish you just caught, Jesus told them. So Simon Peter climbed up, hauled the net ashore, f- full of large fish, 153 of them. I don't know the significance of the number, but it's a large number. Even though there were so many, the net was not torn. Come and have breakfast, Jesus told them. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus, so in essence, Jesus revealed to them who he was by paralleling the original call. And they knew. So, and it's funny because you see, you almost get like a little bit of hesitation. Like, is it really Jesus? Like, yes, it is Jesus. Um, but they didn't recognize him even when they were on the shore with him. They didn't really recognize him because they had this moment of like, this isn't who I, th- it, it, you, you don't look the same. You, you're not, you're not exactly how I remember you. Um but they knew it was Jesus, which I think is important. Well, it's the exact same. Like you said, it's the exact same miracle. And you can imagine, like, especially for these guys who are fishermen, like this is probably only the second time in their lives that someone has had the yeah. like the audacity to shout from the shore, hey, have you tried the other side of the boat? Because it's just it's such a stupid thing to say. Yeah. Like if you're not Christ and you're like about to perform a miracle. Um, yeah, I just I love how he takes I love how Jesus takes the time to essentially 100% recreate the miracle of their first calling. Yeah. It's cool. Uh, so they have breakfast, right? Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them. He did the same with the fish. This is verse 14. This is now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. The third time. So even after the third time, they still couldn't reveal. I think it's so, it's so poignant to me to think like they couldn't recognize him. And this is the third time they still right. didn't recognize him until Jesus revealed himself in a very strategic manner. Verse 15, when they had eaten breakfast, uh, this is this is like what I refer to as the reinstatement. Um, remember, J- Peter denied Christ three times, um, and and this is the first real interaction that we have recorded that he had directly with Jesus. Even though there were instances where Jesus revealed Himself to them, but this is like the first like moment that we see them sitting down like they did before over a meal over and connecting. So Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him. And he was referring to, he's referring to the fish. He's referring to the moment. Do you love me more than this? This is what Peter went back to, remember. Like, even as I'm thinking about it, like he went back to fishing after Jesus died and was risen again, because that's all he knew in that moment. Right. So he went back to fishing and Jesus saying, hey, do you love me more than, than this? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. Or he said, feed my lambs the first time. Second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. He said, truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and wherever you wanted and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands. Someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. He said this to indicate by what kind of death Peter will glorify God. After saying this, he said, he told him, follow me. Um, So all of that, so this significant moment Invading, inviting Peter to be reinstated in essence, he, the three denials, Jesus now reaffirms his love for Christ, his love for Christ, his love for Christ three times. So in essence, he, he, he redeems the three denials by the invitation and the question. And then he says, 
you're going you're gonna to be led out to die for me, to die for God. Glor- and God's going to be glorified in that. Follow me. And so Peter then again follows him. And then Peter turned around, saw the disciple Jesus loved following them. So they were on a, a walk after this. They maybe got up from eating the fish and the bread and then went on a walk. And it says that Peter turned around, saw the disciple the Jesus disciple Jesus loved following them. Again, there's it is again. A classic John. The one who had leaned back against Jesus at supper and asked, Lord, who is the one that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said, Lord, what about him? And Jesus answered, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. And I do love that because sometimes I think it's really easy to get caught up in our own lives where we're comparing our walks with each other. Mm-hmm. And we're like, well, what about them? Well, and, and Jesus' point blank statement to Peter was like, what is, it, what is it to you if I want them to, to go this route or do this? I mean, that's my paraphrase, right? What is it to you concerning you about someone else's life or my plans for someone else? You follow me. And so he's reattaching the, the, the willing, uh, the, the, this is where you keep your eyes fixed is on me. Follow me. Um, and so the, it says 23, verse 23. So this rumor spread to the brothers and sisters that this, is, that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not, and I love this, yet Jesus did not tell him that he would not die, but if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? This is John writing. John is the beloved disciple. John is saying, listen, Jesus didn't say that he wouldn't die, okay? Like I just get like this little bit of a tone uh, in my head as I read it. But if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? Well, and at this point too, remember that we don't know this for sure, but probably John is the last alive disciple at this point. The rest of them have probably died or at least lost. Yeah, because again, remind, remember from last week, the writing happened between 70 AD and John's death right. and 100 AD. So I guess AD 100. For sure, Peter is, I shouldn't say for sure, because John could have written this earlier theoretically, but almost certainly Peter is dead at this point yeah. and probably all of the other disciples as well. So John kind of is, um, Yeah, he's, he's, it, the, he's it, this last yep. remnant feels of- that way. The disciples of Christ. Yeah, no, it's, just, it's just yeah. It's, it's interesting it's, to think about as you yeah. That is interesting because I even forgot that even though I brought it last week. Anyways, uh, and so then verse twenty four. This is the disciple who testifies to these things, who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. He's reaffirming himself, right? He he's writing these words, saying, "Hey, it's the disciple Jesus loved." He's taking on that that title, and I don't think he's doing it arrogantly. I don't think he's doing it smugly. I think he's he he has loved his relationship with his Savior. And, and he understood the love that the Savior had for him. He was also the youngest of the 12 disciples, mm-hmm. as a quick side note too. Um, and then it says in verse 25, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if every one of them were written down, I suppose not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written. I love that line. Which is such a good line. <laughs> it's so good. Uh, and that's how John wraps it up. And so I think there's, it's, it's such an incredible, I just love the book of John. I just think there's so much to it. And you get such a personal, deep, passionate perspective of who Jesus is. And how he and how he was able to affirm and reveal the depth of his messiahship to the world that we know it even today. All right. Well, on that That's note, all we got. that that does wrap it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. As a reminder, we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of the Grove Church. You can find all of our other resources on our website, grove.church, under our media tab. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially contribute to the ministry that the Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website. There's a give button in the upper right-hand corner. Thank you all so much for listening. Have a great day.